Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Cone of Shame Veterinary Podcast. Guys, I've got a great one today. This is such a, um, a fun episode for me. Uh, it, fun is, is one way to put it. Is, this was the most intimidating episode of Cone of Shame I have ever done. If you notice that I... <laughs> That my uh, conversation is a little different with this guest than other guests I have. Know that it's because I'm shaking in my loafers during this conversation. My guest today is the Dr. Mikey Share, or Uncle Mikey, as he is known to all of us Florida graduates. Dr. Share, if you don't know him, um, God, it, it, he he's a living legend. The guy is is I mean, he is when I think of the sharpest clinicians that I have ever met in my life. He's, he's top two or three. I mean, this guy is scary uh, in how good he is at veterinary medicine. Like, I can't, I don't even aspire to be this good because it's just not ever going to happen. I just don't have it in my genes to be the clinician that Dr. Shear is. So, uh, but I'm always going to uh, to uh, chase, and I'm always going to ask him for advice, which is what I do today. Dr. Shear has been in practice, I don't think he'd mind me saying, 50 years. He's been practicing 50 years. He still teaches at Florida. He's written five textbooks. If, if, if I had to write, um, if I could give you a picture from my mind of Dr. Michael Shear, this guy, uh, I just picture him at Florida, when we were in vet school and he would walk down the hallway behind the treatment rooms and just point into one of the treatment rooms as he walked by and said, that dog has Parvo. And then he would turn into the treatment room itself. And, um, and, and there would be like a drop of urine on the table and he would like stick his finger in it and put it in his mouth and go, that cat has diabetes. And then somebody would walk by with this overweight kind of balding pet and he'd be like, that dog has Cushing's. And then he would, uh, somebody would hear, and he would hear the sound of the cat's vo- uh, voice and say, that cat, that cat has hyperthyroid and he would have a hundred percent accuracy diagnostically. It is, I mean, he, it's just, I mean, I literally saw him pick up a small animal, put his ear to its chest and escult its heart correctly. And he's like, Oh, you guys missed something. And, and maybe it was a show. Maybe there was other things that he saw that we as vet students just didn't see. And he was kind of messing with us. I I'm just, I'll never forget. Like he's essentially a wizard of veterinary medicine. And so he is here. I am blown away. Um, I'm I'm running by uh, a case with him on uh, a dog bitten on the lip by a venomous snake. Let's get into this. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help you in your veterinary career. Welcome to the Cone of Shame with Dr. Andy Rourke. Welcome, Dr. Michael Scher. Thank you for being here, sir. Really appreciate it. Uh, you're welcome, Andy. It's a pleasure to be here. I have I have a case for you uh, from uh, from my. This is some of our cases that we like to make are theoretical. This is not. This is one that I had recently, and uh, and I I, I want to go with, through it with you if you don't mind. I sure have, and I know this is something that you do a lot of in Florida. Um, I had a um, a two year old Boykin Spaniel. Which, which I never saw in Florida. I never saw it in Gainesville. Uh, it's the state dog of South Carolina, and now I see them all the time. Really? Um, yeah. But yeah, very similar to the Cocker Spaniel for people who are listening who, who don't see a lot of those. But the Boykin yeah. Spaniel I see a lot of. And this is a young Boykin Spaniel stuck his nose underneath the deck mm-hmm. at the house. You know, barking, head down, tail wagging. That's true. Um, <laughs> mom, mom brings me the dog and says he got bitten by a snake. 
And of course, you know, I, I often kind of, you know, I, w- I wait until presentation to decide how excited I'm going to get uh, get about this. Mom said on the phone, she says a copperhead bit him in the face. It was a tiny, it was a small copperhead, and um, and the dog shows up. And sure enough, this is, it's probably been about 30, 30, 45 minutes by the time I see the dog from the time of the bite and the left side of his lip, I can see those two small little draining tracks. I see the punctures and his lip is swollen. Uh, not, not whole face, but you know what I mean? It's probably a, the size of a large grape is the swelling and I'm getting some ooze out of there. Um, and so I'm looking at this dog in this copperhead bite. And a million things are going through my mind, and um, I'm hearing, you know, don't give him NSAIDs. And then other voices are like, we got to do something pain control. And what what are my uh, what is my my risk of tissue necrosis here? And then um, it's on the lip, and so I'm I'm worried about about tissue death there because it's a fairly s- a small area. And so I, I just I just want to I just want to put this to you and say, you know, Doctor Share. Where, where do I go from here? Like, like I'm looking at this dog just happened. I'm thoroughly convinced it was a copperhead based on, I didn't see the snake. They didn't bring it in. Dad killed it, but it didn't come along. Um, yeah. Walk okay. me through this. How do you, how do you treat that? Where should I go from here? Okay. Uh, the fact that, uh, this is occurring in South Carolina, uh, copperhead is certainly, um, one to consider, but the water moccasin can sometimes extend that far up as well. And even the eastern diamondback in some areas as well. But as far as the frequency of encounter, I would say copperhead um, is probably the majority up there. And um, the one thing that I try to teach all the time about snake bites, Andy, is that no two cases are the same. Okay. Because the, the victim is different and... The snake might be different than another copperhead a mile away. Their venom composition might vary. Okay. Depend, depend on the pressures of the ecosystem as these animals evolve in nature. But the copperhead in general, it is a pit viper, and it contains a venom that is necrogenic. Mm-hmm. It might not necessarily be toxic, it's not neurotoxic. So with the copperhead, we worry more about um, local damage. Now, whether this is going to turn into uh, something that's just simple edema or some focal hemorrhage with edema, it might stop there. Okay. Now, if it's going to get necro, uh, if, uh, if necrogenesis is going to occur, what I found here in Gainesville with the other types of pit vipers that I deal with, the, the signs of necrosis usually don't occur till the end of day, until around day three. Okay. Okay. So as long as that lip is spongy and it looks well vascularized, there's no any change to brownish or blackage uh, or, 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 or black, there is a chance that the, that the swelling is going to go away. Mm-hmm. And as far as the timing of the disappearance of that, it usually starts by day three as well, where it starts resorbing. It might drop a little bit more dependently, and then it will 
to disappear. Um, now, the thing about tissue necrosis, especially with a snake like the copperhead, the tissue necrosis occurs very soon after the bite. So during that 40-minute car ride, the collagenases and the hyaluronidases contained in that venom allowed that venom to spread mm -hmm. and get a fairly good seeding as to whether or not as far as in, into the surrounding soft tissues. So what you don't know when you're looking at that dog is will this go on to necrose? The answer is you don't know. Okay. I don't know. And you say that to the owner. So the next thing is, well, what about treatment? So when, when you look at the spectrum of severity for the copperhead, at least in people in that part of the country, they're usually more local wounds. They get their swelling and they're, hot in, they're out of the ER in maybe three hours. Mm -hmm. But there are some people who can actually go on to become coagulopathic. And they're the ones who are in harm's way. And that's when they start having to take in a whole bunch of antivenom. Mm -hmm. Now, it is going to be up to you to decide whether or not you want to give antivenom. And a lot of that is going to be dependent on um, the, the cost, whether or not the owner can afford it. Okay. My philosophy is that if there's the possibility that this envenomation can go beyond a minimal localized envenomation, I'd rather be proactive and head it off. Okay. And I would, and I, and I would suggest one vial of antivenom. All right. Now, something like venom vet will be fine. Okay. Or even the uh, boring green. Engelheim, the the um, the one we used to call um, Fort Dodge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, that'll work as well. Okay. And um, the chances of one vial causing um, anaphylaxis, I would say, would be less than ten percent. Okay. But the chances of that envenomation getting worse. Is probably more than ten percent. Okay, so that's why. Okay, so a couple a couple questions here. Um, yeah. and I I'm so glad you're here. Let me. Let, let, can you unpack um a little bit about anti venom for me as far as um is it species dependent, snake species dependent? Because I had sort of thought that you know obviously uh, I'm in the south. Um, the eastern diamondback rattlesnake is what we really worry about in the neurotoxin. Uh, you know, uh, as opposed to your more um uh. Um, locally destructive bites of, of your of your water moccasin, your copperhead, things like that. Um, does the species of snake play into uh, your choice to use antivenom or not? And then also, uh, you say you say go with a, a a a single vial. Is that is that size dependent on the patient um, at all? So so if you could unpack so sort of the a high level of of, of antivenom okay. thought right okay. now, I, I think that would be so helpful. Okay, there are. There are a few types of anti-venoms available to us in the United States. We have VenomVet mm -hmm. that's made in Argentina. That's made from the South American 
and I think the Central American pit vipers. Venom Vetu is coming out, and when it gets cleared, it'll be made from the venom of local snakes in, the, in North America. Mm-hmm. But the venom vet that we use now comes from uh, pit vipers from south of the border. The reason that it works for our snakes is because the, the pit viper venoms in this part of the world, in the Western Hemisphere, share antigens. So using an anti-venom that's against uh, bothrops or, um, or one of the other um, pit viper America, that might very well still be effective against the eastern diamondback and the water moccasin and mm-hmm. the copperhead. So that's good. Now, the venom vet is, and it's called an FAB2, where the most primitive anti-venom that they used to use in people from, from white has an FAB, an FAB, and an FC component. Okay. Remember, this stuff is made in horses. So you got the specific uh, ground-to-air missile, the FAB, mm-hmm. but they're linked together with this FC, which is extra protein from the horse serum. Okay. And that's what contributes to its anaphylactogenicity. Gotcha. Okay. Now, BI, or the Fort Dodge product, has the FC component. Rattler, the new antivenom that comes in those plasma bags, okay. that's a large molecule as well. They have a tendency to, to load more extra antigen and to make the animal... Um, perhaps more hypersensitive to it. Crofab we don't use because of the expense. So you can so what veterinarians are going to use is Rattler, the Fort Dodge product, and the Venom Vet. Mm-hmm. As far as I'm concerned, they all work. They all work. Okay. The Rattler might have some extra antigen to it. And some people might not want to get involved with that, but it's still effective against venom. Okay. Okay. Now, as far as duration of the anti-venom in the blood, this is where you want your ground-to-air missile to get into the bloodstream, nuke out the venom protein, and hang around for a while. The problem with Crofab it's out of there in six hours. The Venom Vet hangs around for around 24 to 36 hours. Okay. The Fort Dodge product can hang around for as long as 48 hours. So, that comes to an advantage to you because when the dog gets bitten by the snake, some of the venom will go into the system fairly acutely while the other amount of venom is deposited at the bite site, and then it slowly infuses over the next several hours. Well, if you use a fast-acting anti-venom like Crofab, those ground-to-air missiles will already be out of the sky. But if you use the longer-acting anti-venoms, they're still there to intercept. So that's where VenomVet and the 
for a Dodge product will work to your advantage. Now, as far as the dosage of antivenom is concerned, it's impossible to specify for the reason being that we don't know how much venom is inoculated. Mm -hmm. So I go by clinical signs. Okay. The other question that goes along with the choice of the antivenom is um, what snakes contribute to the manufacture of that particular product. The Fort Dodge product is going to use several North American snakes. Okay. The Venom Vet 1, which is what's available now, uses the South American snakes, but it's still effective against the North American snakes. So I take advantage of the cross-antigenicity. Mm -hmm. The Rattler is made from North American snakes. Now, the question you asked me, when there are several snakes in one geographic locale, how do you know which snake bit the dog? Mm -hmm. We can squeeze out of that predicament by using the polyvalent uh, antivenom. Now, in Australia, they might use monovalent. In other words, an antivenom against the brown snake or the tiger snake or the taipan snake. But they're getting smarter now in Australia because some of their antigen detection kits might be inaccurate and they're switching over to polyvalent and just covering the victim with all of them okay. in that area. So here in the U.S., we have traditionally always used the polyvalent vaccine. So like I said before, they all work. They differ in their molecular size. And the choice is going to be up to you as to which product you want to use. Gotcha. Okay. Let's, let, yeah, let, let's go on um, from there. So uh, an antivenom, your recommendation is, uh, is, is much stronger than, than I guess what, what I sort of gave to the pet owner. So I, I, I really love that, uh, that we laid this out. So um, at least a single vial of antivenom, I think that makes sense. What um okay? What other sort of supportive care are we talking about? You know, if okay. if it's three days until I'm going to see signs of necrosis, do I need to have this dog on fluids for seventy two hours? I mean, help help me with okay. that part. Okay, as far as the dosage of the antivenom, that's going to depend on a scale that we call the snake bite severity score that goes from one to twenty, and it encompasses various pathophysiological things that we see clinically like whether there's coagulopathy, neurotoxicity, cardiac arrhythmias, hemolysis. If we see all of those in that one victim, I'm going to start off with several vials. Mm -hmm. Maybe if, and I'm going to make it simple. If the animal comes in walking, wagging its tail, I might give one vial. Mm -hmm. If it comes in walking very slowly and it doesn't look right and it looks like it's going to get sick, I might start off with two or three vials. Now, behind those guesstimates is the snake bite severity score going on in my head. If an animal comes in recumbent and trying to die on me, he's hypotensive, he's bleeding, he's hemolyzing, that dog will 
probably start off with four to six vials. Mm-hmm. And then, if they're really severe, we'll run an ACT, where normally the ACT is less than 120. If the ACT doesn't normalize, I might repeat a couple more vials of antivenom at hour six. Okay. You see what I mean? Yep. Okay. And it just goes on to assess and reassess, assess and reassess until the patient is stabilized. Now, with the copperhead, okay, I know a lot of times the animals get better without the antivenom. You might just give them some fluids and they might get off real cheap and go home and everything's going to be okay. A lot of practitioners will also use antihistamines and steroids. There's no evidence-based medicine to show the efficacy of steroids and antihistamines. Okay. The only time I use them is when there's a hypersensitivity reaction to the antivenom. But if the blood pressure is kind of borderline when it comes in, I'll give them crystalloid. We don't use antivenom on every case here in Florida either. If I have a pygmy rattler and the animal comes in walking, wagging its tail, but it hurts because it got bitten on the paw, we'll watch it for 24 hours. That, that's important. We keep them in the hospital. If the people have absolutely no ability to pay the bill or anything like that, that's the only time they, they will walk out on the same day, but they're told to come back, of course, if, if there is de- further decompensation. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I know that uh, close to 8 out of 10 practitioners want to use the antihistamine and the steroid. And I'll, I'll give you some clarification on that. Mm-hmm. It depends on where you are in the world and whose country antivenom you're using. If you're in Pakistan or if you're in India and you're dealing with the snake bites out there, a lot of times they're vipers or cobras, their antivenoms might not be as pure as those products that we use here. Mm-hmm. And the incidence of allergic reactions are very high. In those situations, they'll give the patient antihistamines and steroids initially and then give the antivenom. But in the Western Hemisphere, it's not recommended in human medicine. And I've uh, convinced everybody here at the school on now hundreds of cases that you don't have to use steroids and antihistamines, that my cases will get better just as fast as yours if (laughs) those two drugs are, are being used. So um, I leave it, of course, to the individual colleague. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're using something that works for them, you know, I don't want to upset their apple cart. But if they were to ask me for, is there anything to document the efficaciousness of this? I would answer it in the way I just told you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Perfect. Okay. Now, as far as waiting for necrosis, um, there are times when dogs will be discharged from here at the end of the second day and it hasn't actually been long enough for necrosis to make itself known so we tell the people look for any signs of discoloration and change in texture of the skin if the skin changes from pliable to feeling like leather there is a likelihood that that's going to necrose mm-hmm. 
So they could tell or they could send you a picture on their cell phone and or a video and you could make a decision whether or not they should bring it back for debridement. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. What, uh, what is your pain control plan with these patients? All right, pain control initially on a severe case is minimal Okay. because I don't want to knock them out with drugs when their level of consciousness is, is helping me decide on whether they're trying to die or not. Right. And um, we will use um, methadone and extend that for maybe the first two days on those who, that aren't as severe. Or we might, if the severe case comes in, we'll hold off on the pain control until we get the patient stabilized, and then we can monitor them better. But if you have a copperhead doggy that comes in after barking at something under the porch, and the, the, and the paw is swollen, and it's obviously not weight-bearing, and it hurts like crazy, then um, um, uh, gabapentin works methadone works as an injectable, or you might start off with methadone and send them home on a few days of gabapentin, something like that. Okay, perfect. That's wonderful. Thank you, thank you for doing this. I, I really uh, appreciate uh, this. This has been so enlightening. Uh, do you have any parting pearls, any last words of wisdom for me as I head off to take care of, uh, of my steak-bitten dog? Anything I should look out for? Okay. Uh, anything like that? Uh, I know this is go, go, going to sound silly, but I say to the residents, look at the patient and only the patient will help you God. In other words, don't, don't walk in there, oh, I know all about this. I'm going to do this, 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 and this. It's like driving your car on the road. You're going to drive according to the speed limit and the safety conditions. And I'm going to assess that patient according to what that patient is telling me. And um, don't be presumptuous um, and um, interpret everything that you see with as open mind as you can. Cool. And um, I think that'll get you out of trouble. And, and always remember Uncle Mikey's maxims because they're always out there to save you. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Awesome. Thanks a lot for being here. I really appreciate your okay. time. It's a pleasure indeed. You take care. Bye-bye. And that is our episode. Guys, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned a lot. I know I did. Uh, Dr. Share blows my mind. I, I Honestly, when I, was, when I was starting this podcast, my idea was, man, I wish I could go back and just spend a couple hours uh, back in clinics at the old vet school and just soak up more knowledge now that I've got uh, 10 years of experience under my belt. And, um, and I set up to try to make that happen with this podcast. And so guys, I hope I did it. Uh, this was uh, sort of the person I had in mind when I was thinking about that way back in the day. Um, yeah, as he did not disappoint as always, if you got something out of this, please share it with your friends and, uh, write us an honest review at Apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. It really is how people find us. Take care. Be well. Talk to you later.